I'd like to start by stating the obvious. Uh, it would have been much more pleasant if this event was held in a physical environment and not a virtual one. This is true, of course, about every event, but the reason for me to state the obvious is that if you look at the title of this talk, uh, you realize that I'm trying to promote multi-sensory interactions. And so being in a physical environment makes a huge difference as far as the depth of the experience is concerned. Just imagine uh, what would have happened if uh, we were all in a physical space together, we could have probably tasted a glass of wine or two before the event begins. We could hug old friends and shake hands with new ones, perhaps a bit of background music. And so all our senses would have been engaged in the process and the experience would have been much more satisfying. Hopefully in the near future, uh, we can do that. Uh, one more point or rather a pro uh, promotional message before I get to a short introduction. The title of this talk refers, uh, among other things, to a book that my friend and colleague, uh, let me see if I can bring up uh, the PowerPoint. There you go. My friend and colleague, uh, Professor uh, Amir uh, uh, Musavi, uh, and uh, I have co-edited, and it includes 10 chapters or rather nine chapters and an introduction by 10 different scholars. Uh, it's going through its last stages and hopefully it will be out uh, uh, in a few months. Uh, I should also add that the title uh, is a kind of, the title of the book and my uh, talk is a kind of uh, a problematized version of part of a famous sentence by a sensory studies anthropologist, uh, David Towers. I'll get back to him, uh, mention him again uh, in a bit. I started uh, working on sensory studies, uh, trying to use it in Persian literature about six years ago. And the idea emerged in a context which is informed by the fact, or at least in my opinion, by the fact that I believe that Persian literary criticism during the modern period has been dominated by approaches which seek to construct what I have called committed readings. By that I mean these approaches prioritize sociopolitical, philosophical, and in general, they emphasize content in its traditional sense. Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with sociopolitical, philosophical, feminist, historical, biographical, whatever approaches, and they certainly play an important role in any literary uh, uh, tradition. But overemphasizing these content-based approaches and dismissing other perspectives or methods rather uh, has rather terrible consequences. I'll mention too, there are certain works of art, in this case, Persian uh, literature, which actually do not lend themselves uh, to such readings. Take, for example, works of uh, modernist author, authors like uh, 
شمین بهار پرویز دوایی عباس نلبندیان ارتوستان مکستان بهمن فرسی شهریار مندنی پور بیژن نجدی رضا جولای I can go on and on many of them uh, are simply ignored or have received very little attention just because as I said they don't lend themselves to such committed uh, readings but what I find more troublesome are instances where wonderful works of literature are reduced to their so-called main points. In other words, we ignore many sections of a given work in order to emphasize the important matters. Let me clarify my point by giving you an example. We have all read many books and articles about Farooq Farooqzad and the most common reductionist socio-political explanation of her poetry by far is the following argument that Muhammad Reza Shah tried to impose the modernity project which was not native to Iran and one of the con consequences was marginalization of intellectuals and artists and Farrukhzad's poetry is an expression of this artistic and personal loneliness. Now, here's the question. <clears throat> Farrukhzad was not the first poet or the last one who chose loneliness as a theme in her poetry. Why is it that we can relate to her much better then we can relate to others who wrote about the same topic during the same period. The general argument cannot answer this question. And worse than that, it cannot help us relate to fantastic lines such as uh, the famous line, I go to the porch and caress the stretched skin of the night with my fingertips. I hope you are appreciating the employment of the sense of touch in this line. This is a descriptive line, and I want to emphasize this. Such reductionist approaches ignore descriptions. Let's be honest. How many times while reading a long novel, we have skipped descriptions? just because we wanted to know what happens next. Because we thought in comparison to what happens, those descriptions are not that important. Because we thought those descriptions are rather superficial and we have to look for deep hidden meanings. But actually there are many works of art in which surface or style is everything. An example from everyday life. Imagine we want to buy a pair of pants. We go to Macy's department store. We expect, we demand to hear a piece of background music. We expect to experience a nice, pleasant scent. By the way, uh, they have uh, different scents in different sections of the store. In fact, the reason we go to the department store is not because we want to make sure about the functional aspect of the item we are purchasing, 
In other words, we are not trying to see if the pair of pants actually covers our legs. It does. We are going there because we want to have a multi-sensory experience. We look at the color, we touch the fabric, we smell the fabric, and so there are, these are the descriptive, descriptive parts which are the main ingredients of the experience. One of my favorite French theoreticians is Roland Barthes, and he has specifically talked about uh, 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 this matter, skipping descriptions while reading a novel. You can read uh, the PowerPoint slide, and I'm reading it with you. We do not read, he says, everything with the same intensity of reading. Our very avidity for knowledge impels us to a skim or to a skip certain passages anticipated as boring in order to get more quickly to the warmer parts of the anecdote, which are always its articulations. We boldly skip, no one is watching. Descriptions, explanations, analysis, conversations. Doing so, we resemble a spectator in a nightclub who climbs onto the stage and speeds up the dancer's striptease, tearing off her clothing. Frankly, he has a point. The whole point of a striptease show is the gradual process of removing one item of clothing at a time, while all other senses are generating sensory perceptions through interactions with the environment. With all that in mind, let's go back to the main question. How can we fight against the empire of content-based literary criticism? So it was in this context that I started working with theoretical frameworks inform, informed by traditional formalism, uh, Russian formalism, new critique, and finally, sensory studies. A few, uh, uh, very quick uh, notes. Sensory studies is a subfield in anthropology, which is probably more than four decades old. Its concepts have been used to construct readings in a variety of artistic fields. And I've been trying to do the same thing in the context of Persian literary tradition. A few quick words about this subfield, which I'm hoping would clarify my perspective. Traditional anthropologists used to go to a region, interview a bunch of people, take pictures, and then provide immaturely, I would say, an explanation of that region. I know, I'm way oversimplifying things just to make my point, but they would say, uh, well, this region is located next to a body of water, uh, so the economy of the region is very much based on uh, uh, fishing uh, and agriculture. Then they would define and describe the landscape. But here is the problem. They never tell us what are the sounds that one would hear when one walks in the streets of that region? What are the smells? In other words, they were eyewitnessing, but they forgot that they have to also nose witness. Uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 
touch witness, smell witness, ear witness, Lord, rather. In other words, they define the landscape, but not the soundscape or smell escape uh, or uh, touch escape uh, uh, and taste. So what sensory studies subfield is saying is that we have to go beyond just visual culture. We need sound studies, taste culture, touch culture, and so on. You can, of course, imagine how difficult it is to describe a taste scape or a smell scape because we actually don't have the uh, necessary vocabulary for it. Long story, but think about it. We have a word for someone who cannot see, blind. We have a word for someone who cannot hear, deaf. But we don't have a regularly used word for someone who cannot smell or who cannot taste. It is unfortunate that it took something like COVID-19 to bring to the fore these conditions. That is the incapacity to taste and or to smell. But that's a topic for another conversation. <clears throat> In any case, I do believe that using concepts defined by this subfield, as well as, and this is important, those uh, depicted in European paintings during Middle Ages, late Renaissance and Baroque periods by painters who were obsessed with the idea of putting the traditional senses on the canvas. The painting that I chose uh, 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 for this talk uh, is uh, one of uh, uh, the famous paintings from uh, uh, late Renaissance Baroque periods. I hope uh, we get a chance to talk about it uh, during Q&A. Uh, but anyway, the concepts by the subfield and by these uh, paintings, uh, if we develop these concepts in the context of literary criticism with an eye on specifics of Persian literary uh, uh, tradition, uh, it could certainly help us construct reading models which could shed light on some of the most beautiful works of Persian literature, modernist or classical. Now, to demonstrate this point, I'm going to discuss one sensory reading model that I suggest we can use to approach a given literary text. I'm going to go very quickly through part of a very well-known Azal by Hafez. But before doing that, I should mention that like Farrokhzad's poetry, many Ghazads or lines of Hafez have been underappreciated because of the dominance of a grand lazy reductionist narrative which tries to summarize Hafez. Again, we have all read books and articles about his poetry and many of them tell us that Hafez is great because he fought against uh, religious hypocrisy, as if this is something new. Or they say that his poetry is all about mysticism and reunification of man and God. Let's be clear, many, many poets before and after Hafez have written about these topics, but none of them has become Hafez. So what makes Hafez unique? <coughs> 
at least with regard to some of, some of, not all, some of his results, I can answer this question through a sensory approach. I'm sure many of you uh, are familiar with his uh, extremely famous ghazal, which begins with, uh, come so that we may scatter rose petals and toss or cast wine into the cup and split the roof of the sky or firmament and again toss or cast new designs. The second uh, hemistich has always received more attention. No doubt, this is an indication of the deep influence of the empire of language, content-based signs and codes on Persian literary criticism. Since we don't have enough time, I'm going to make a gross generalization and say that a large number of texts or exegesis of Hafez's poetry would immediately start conceptualizing based on preconceived ideas. And they tell us that the second hemistish suggests that the poet <coughs> representing the mankind is trying to replace God because he, God, has not done a good job on earth. They are anticipating the second line in which the poet talks about the separation of lovers. Then there are others who argue that no, this half line indicates that mankind is going to reunite with God, his beloved. And again, they rely on the second line as well. Here is the uh, second line. If sorrow raises an army to spill lovers' blood, the Sari and I, the cupbearer and I, will rush together or will join and attack together and destroy its foundation. <clears throat> Frankly, I think it takes a lot of uh, imagination and speculation to impose these uh, inter interpretations that I just mentioned. This is one of the consequences of a very bad habit that many of us have, and that is using the mind way too quickly before collecting enough sensory data. In other words, instead of these premature conceptualizations, and pay attention here, I'm suggesting that let's throw ourselves in this environment with as much physicality as possible and have a multi-sensory experience. In fact, this is what Hofez is suggesting. Let's uh, pause on the second line a bit longer and specifically pay attention to the epic language that he's using in lyric poetry. And in fact, you can see that uh, the same thing in the first line as well, where he's using verbs such as casting or tossing instead of pouring. Now, using an epic language in a lyric poem is not new, but I truly believe that Hafez is the absolute master of it. In fact, in my opinion, this line, the second line, technically and stylistically speaking, is one of the most accomplished lines in Persian classical poetry. He's using an epic battle-related bloody language 
to describe a most delicate, tender, exquisite lyric situation. The idea is simple. If sorrow caused by the separation of lovers becomes so unbearable that it threatens the life of the lovers, we, poet lover and the cupbearer Sari, will rigorously fight back. <clears throat> but here's a question. What kind of counterattack or fight can a poet lover and a sorry put up? The answer comes in the lines that follow, but frankly, it's obvious. Here's the point. If depression spreading sorrow attacks us, we, poetry and wine, lover and sorry and beloved, we will throw uh, or lover and sorry will throw a lively, joy-producing party, or rather a banquet, to destroy sadness. The two lines that follow offer one of the most complete yet succinct multi-sensory description of a banquet, and I think in the sensory reading model, they are the most important lines of this ghazal. The description of this banquet once again brings up the ever important question of how we should approach this physical poetic environment. Should we, should we behave like a Cartesian creature sitting at a distance from this environment, just pondering and trying to quench or desire to accumulate as much quasi-knowledge as possible? Or should we suspend, and here is important, should we suspend temporarily our minds so that we can come to our senses? In other words, shouldn't we just abandon every inhibition and throw ourselves into this environment and try to relate to it with every single one of our senses, an absolute multi-sensory experience. I definitely choose this approach and I believe the text of this ghazal is also encouraging us to choose this approach. In fact, <clears throat> the lines which describe this banquet very clearly tried to activate or reactivate every single one of our traditional senses. Here is the following line. We shall pour rose water into the bowl of purple wine, toss sugar in the incense burner uh, of the perfume spreading breeze. In a short line, He invokes very clearly and efficiently three of the five traditional senses. The sense of sight, obviously, through the color of wine, and I'm happy that the sense of sight, which traditionally occupies the highest position in the hierarchy of senses, doesn't get too much attention here. That's nice. Then the sense of smell, which is represented by the rose water, perfume spreading breeze, incense, incense burner, and perhaps most importantly, by the sweet 
scent of burning sugar, which glides into the sense of taste, the sweetness of sugar and the taste of wine. That leaves us with two more senses, which are referred to directly and indirectly in uh, line four. While you have a lute in your hands, play minstrel a joyful song so that flinging our hands, we sing a ghazal and stomping our feet sway our heads. I really love this uh, seemingly chaotic, dynamic, lively description. Uh, the banquet is populated I want to read this slowly. It, it's a very, for me, uh, uh, nice in the sense that it summarizes this reading model. The banquet is populated by bodies, forms, including those of the employed poet and the sari, which simultaneously drop into this space and start mingling, uh, uh, or rather bumping into each other penetrating into sliding over each other as if they were shapes filled with liquids. Probably this characteristic helps explain why when one reaches the pandemonic scene of sinking ghazal while flinging hands, stomping feet and swaying heads, before anything else, one feels that these bodies are not controlled as if these hands and heads and legs are not moving according to the will of their owners. It seems that the whole body, this fluid, unstable mass covered with, uh, completely with the skin, the, the organ of the sense of touch has suddenly started to hear, to taste, to smell and to see. It seems that the skin has taken on consciousness. This explains why all of a sudden these bodies begin this seemingly uncontrollable, animated, ecstatic dance. Now, the, the consciousness of the skin is not just about the skin. <clears throat> it's about the surface. It's, it's about style, the outer layer. This banquet, which does not need, by the way, any initial important ideas to legitimize itself, is just a surface which is covered with ornaments like wine, sugar, musical instruments, dance, and rose water. These are only ornaments and nothing else. We should not try to find hidden meanings in them and present them as symbolizing complex philosophical uh, and ontological whatever concepts. As a matter of fact, uh, such an approach would be disrespectful to the ornaments because they are complex enough in and of themselves. As someone once said while uh, discussing the relationship between cosmic and cosmetic, nothing is deeper than adornment, ornaments. Um, 
here I'm actually thinking also about uh, Virginia Postler's book called Substance of Style, which I think we could easily call also Substance of the Surface, or as the famous Hayden White had it, Content of the Form. Anyway, going back to uh, the Hafezian banquet, there are many critics who consider these lines unimportant, superficial, and so on. These are the same people who think, uh, for example, spending uh, two hours uh, at a department store trying to buy a pair of pants or a necklace or whatever is a waste of time. Or uh, spending, I don't know, $100 on a dinner is a, at the restaurant is a waste of money. And their argument is <clears throat> of that, oh, uh, you can make the same thing at home with $10. True, but the extra $90 is for the uh, uh, sensescape, if you will, of the restaurant. Again, let's face it, uh, uh, we have all done this, opening a can of tuna in the kitchen and eating it from the can over the sink and calling, calling it dinner. No, this is not dining, this is just eating. Uh, or a more literary example, read the description of the first night of uh, marriage of Khusru and Shirin by Nizami. That is making love as opposed to, you know, uh, again, uh, uh, I hope we get a chance to have more, uh, to talk more about uh, 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 this uh, scene in Khusru and Shirin during q &A. Anyway, those of you who are interested in reading the uh, uh, rest of this reading model uh, or descriptive analysis should wait for the book to come out hopefully in a few months. But I can tell you that the whole idea in this banquet and most of the Ghazal is to get drunk with the whole body, with people around, dancing, singing, tasting, touching. This is a full contact experience, moving from one sense to another and back, seamlessly, fluidly, enjoying the outer layer without even trying to find deep hidden meanings, and in fact, even consciously avoiding such efforts. Of course, uh, as I mentioned a few moments ago, there are people who simply cannot appreciate these sensory experiences. This is, of course, a, a different conversation, but let me give you one quick example before wrapping this up. Uh, many years ago, many decades ago, uh, Ayatollah Mutahari, who actually considered himself a Hafez scholar, defended the search for such deep hidden meanings by a large group of Hafez scholars who have relentlessly insisted that Hafez's poetry is only about the divine and sublime ideas and nothing else. His ultimate argument was that it cannot be otherwise because in that case, Hafez will be just a poet and his writing will be just poetry. I'm not, I'm not making it up. Here's the, uh, there you go. I, uh, 
quote him, uh, he said, one interpretation of how physics poetry is the so-called materialistic interpretation, meaning that we interpret the things mentioned in his language, such as wine, the beloved, and so on, exactly as they appear in the poem. He went on to say, if we interpret Hafez like this, then there will be nothing left of Hafez except the art of poetry. This means the reflection of moral and spiritual decadence at its highest degree, plus the art of poetry. I think no one could help him. Anyway, this is obviously an exaggerated example of people who are no longer <coughs> capable of sensory interactions with their environment, perhaps because their senses are in a dormant state and even Hafez cannot reactivate them. Uh, I, uh, let me end by using an analogy to summarize the reading model that I have been talking about. I have used this analogy many times and so my apologies to those who have already heard or uh, uh, read it. I'm suggesting that we should consider, uh, consider a novel or any work of fiction, an architecture, uh, a physical environment, a house, to which we have been invited. Or let me make it more personal. Imagine I invite you to my place for dinner. As a uh, red-blooded Iranian, you can imagine uh, uh, that I spend at least one week uh, preparing for the banquet. I'll make sure uh, to have a variety of food items so that you can have a rich gustatory experience. There'll be candles whose scents would work harmoniously or would function as counterpoints to other sensory perceptions. I'll spend quite a bit of time uh, choosing appropriate pieces of music as well as nice fabrics, fabrics to throw on uh, pieces of furniture so that you can, uh, it can uh, uh, appeal to your sense of touch. I will set the table facing south so that we can enjoy Manhattan's sunset. And of course, I will also think about a few topics for conversation. Now, imagine you come to the party and a couple of days later, you meet a friend and they ask you about the party. And you say, oh, it was great. They ask you, so what was good about it? And you say, oh, well, we had wonderful conversations. I learned a lot. You can be sure that if I hear about this, I'll never invite you to my place again. I went through so much trouble and you completely ignored a huge textual space of my party. You basically ignored the descriptive parts of the banquet novel. The only ones who will be reinvited are those who manage to read the whole novel cover to cover 
meaning that they manage to relate to that environment with every single one of their senses and are not shy about describing their experiences. So I'm going to stop here and thank you again all for coming. Um, and thanks to again Moradam uh, programs. I am dying to hear your comments, whether during the Q&A or you can contact me if you have any idea to improve uh, this project. And if there is, uh, there are any questions, I'll do my best to answer uh, a couple of them. Thank you.